Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcasts, in association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, a Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. On today's podcast, Dr. Muna Haddadine will be leading us on a discussion about advanced care planning, about breaking bad news with reflection, our own prior experiences and prior cases. everyone and welcome back to a new episode. I am Munah Dadeen, the IMP1 in Airdale General Hospital and I will be your host today. We are shaking things up a bit with one of my favourite topics to be fair but also a very sensitive one so I want to make sure that um, our listeners know that I we are um, we acknowledge the sensitivity of this topic and we will be committing to handling it with care throughout the episode. The episode will touch on breaking bad news as well as effective communication styles, advanced care planning, the pros of it and the importance as well as as well as some of the challenging and difficult scenarios that come on our daily practice. I know this is something that a lot of people would agree with me on. It was not comfortable for me to have these discussions in the beginning of my career and some of the things that helped me was watching and learning from some of my seniors taking tips and tricks on how to handle these scenarios which brings me to some of our guests tonight i have two expert guests tonight two highly skilled registrars with uh, that have personally affected my journey dr elliot greenwood he is he's very skilled in these conversations a lot of people in area hospital know that he has a research post in palliative medicine um, in the University of Leeds, looking at pain control within different care settings. He has a national poster in the British Geriatric Society, looking at improving respect form discussions during COVID. He's been invited to be an instructor in the Compass course, which is a compulsory course for IMT trainees. I've done that course last week, so I am pretty excited to be having this podcast this week. I've learned some things last week that I'd like to mention throughout this episode. Um, Elliot, do you want to say anything? Hi. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I can uh, fill those shoes that you described there. Uh, I'll try my best, but I, I this is a topic I'm very passionate about, and I think it's uh, just as important as being able to pick up a heart murmur or listen to someone's chest. I think uh, advanced care planning is, is one of the most important things we can do as clinicians. Nice. And our second guest is our famous chief registrar, Dr. Mark Johnson. So Mark Johnson has, has been involved in all that regarding the escalation plans for elderly patients during covid that was presented locally. It's also held medical school uh, school teachings on end-of-life care. Hi, Dr. Mark. Hello. I say slightly less bigger shoes than Dr. Greenwood has to fill. I, I feel very inferior in these discussions. Dr. Greenwood sounds like he's the expert on the matter. I should leave him to it. Well, I wanted to start with breaking bad news. I think with breaking bad news, there is. I, I want us to touch a bit on the effective communication styles, effective language, and positive presentations of bad news to, to patients. Dr. Greenwood, do you have, do you want to share some of your experience in that regard? Yeah, so where do you start with breaking bad news? So I, I agree with the positive presentations of bad news. I think it's really clear to what we're always taught is to fire warning shots, you know, to use useful, simple language and not too much medical jargon so that the family and the patient feel that they understand and are going to go on this journey with you, not giving too much information brashly or quickly. You know, it's usually if you think you're going to break a diagnosis of cancer for the first time, it's usually a good idea to fire warning shots towards the patient and say, look, we've done this scan. You may know what we're looking for on the scan. And um, if I'm going to tell you this news, would you like anyone with you um, so that 
somebody is with them because we forget that we go in and we break this news but then actually when we walk out that person is sat there with that news they might not then have anyone to talk to about or they just kind of have to sit in the hospital bed and kind of think about what you just said so people will always remember how they are told they have cancer or a bad diagnosis and for us it's very easy for us to forget that as we do it you know three or four times a day to people whereas they will only get told that once in their life so that's why i feel personally it's very important to try and get it right for people mark what about you yeah i I very much agree with what you said it's certainly a common part of the medical registrar's job to break bad news as you become more senior your involvement in that process can change a little bit when I was a senior house officer, I certainly led some of those discussions with patients, but those are patients you were normally quite familiar with. As a senior doctor, you tend to be breaking those news on call, where there'll be a bit more acuity related, and the news may have a very different type of context to it. As a individual, I think you go about it different ways depending on your own personal experience, but also based on the experiences that you've had and the interactions you've seen with senior colleagues. I approach it in slightly different ways to to the way you'll approach it and we all develop our own style and technique i think the most important thing is you are comfortable leading those discussions however you wish to lead them but always do it from a patient-centered personal-centered perspective because at the end of the day it's about the news and their information it's how you relay that in terms of actual approach for how i do it i always try to break things down to the what we have been doing what we now know and where we're going next to help try and contextualize the patient journey. So, for example, we talk about a patient with a malignancy. We'll explain that we were doing this investigation because we were worried about something. There's your breaking shot in that news. And then go through methodically what you found, how you're then going to act on it. So you help bring the patient journey together but also make sure the patient leaves for the most important information. So one of the real challenges of breaking bad news is not being too medical, but also making sure the correct information is relayed. And actually that may vary depending on the person you speak to. If you speak to someone who's a medic themselves, they may want to know significantly more information than someone who has little medical knowledge and may just want to know that there is a cancer and that we're going to try and treat it. So you have to be able to personalize this information. Whatever style you adapt, as long as you're comfortable with it and you relay the information in a safe and polite manner, I think that's always, for me, the most important thing. Getting too caught up in the strict formalities that you may follow can end up leading you down a path of just following a mechanism rather than thinking about a person sat in front of you. Luna, you're reasonably new to internal medicine and say you've completed the course. What's your sense on breaking bad news? How do you go about it? I think one of the points you mentioned regarding being very clear and concise, making sure that the information you're trying to relate to the patient actually is delivered, they understand it. And sometimes it means being a bit frank about things, but also making sure there's a, there's a really thin line between being frank and rude and also or being just very compassionate and relay this information in a way that makes the person in front of you feel very supported and very cared for, because this is what we're trying to do. I think that breaking bad news is really important in that sense, because as you said, Dr. Greenwood, it happens to a patient once in a lifetime, and they remember it so vividly because it's really a traumatic event. It's not going to be a happy a happy day for them. And how they remember it is is really important to me. One of the things that I think about is I want to be remembered in the, in their story in a way that I was someone that supported them 
not someone that just gave them bad news. What do you think, Dr. Greenwood? Yeah, know? yeah. so I uh, I echo all of your points. There is a certain thing that Mark said about a different style, and my style is slightly different, which is what I wanted to build upon. And I also want to build on what you said, uh, Dr. Hadadine, about a thin line between being frank and rude. So my, my opening gambit is, you know, what do you understand about your condition? And even before that starts, you need to set the tone in the room. So a lot of things in the UK is taught about your soft skills or your non-communicative body language. So I tend to go in, I tend to get on the patient's level, either kneel down at the bedside, speak quietly, softly, make sure I introduce myself to everyone in the room. So you know that who they are, what they are, how they want to be known as, you know, what do you like to be called, those kind of things. These are all things that actually make it more personable. When when you are down on that level, you know, people, people are scared about touching people's hands and things. But if you think the moment is right and you think actually they just need a bit of support and they're getting overwhelmed with everything, you can just put your hand on them and say, look, it's going to be fine or we'll get through this together. We're going to give you a plan. But usually asking them, like I said, what do you understand about your condition? Most people know that they are going to have a cancer. Usually it makes my job then easy if they turn to me and go, it's not good, is it, doctor? They've already fired the first warning shot and I can build upon that and say, actually, it isn't what we thought it was going to be or no, you're right. This isn't good news. And that sets the tone. Mark, I agree. what do you, what do you about- think, Mark? I think that's a really true point. And it's, it's surprising how often when you speak to a patient and ask them what they thought we were looking for, what they think is going on. Most people, when we start asking them about weight loss, about blood in the stools, about a cough that's not got better, patients aren't foolhardy. They will be aware there's a risk that we were looking for something really serious. And actually waking that sense of concern up in them helps you lead that discussion. Because if you say, you know, we were investigating the cause of your weight loss and one of the potential causes of weight loss is cancer. Straight away, if a, particularly if a patient's told you that they worried about their weight loss, you open that discussion, you suddenly put that issue on the table. The discussion is almost being led a little bit by the patient at that point, which is a better way to approach it. Breaking bad news is often us just relaying information. But if you can come at it from a point where the patient is addressing a concern and you are responding, it becomes much more of a discussion between the patient and the doctor, which generally means that their questions are going to be answered. One of the most common outcomes from these discussions is a patient saying, I've got no questions, I've got nothing to ask you. And in a way, that concerns me. Does that mean you were not expecting this at all? Because surely there would have been something in your mind, even if it is, have I got cancer, which you hopefully would relay by breaking the bad news. You hope there's a bit more context and that they've had a bit of time to think so you can make this a discussion back and forth of, we did that scan, we now know you have cancer. Okay, what type of cancer? It's this type of cancer. You may not lead the discussion like that, but you want to open it up in a way that it can become a discussion where all the patient questions are addressed. I know that's more towards the end of these discussions, but it's an important part of how you open up that discussion in the first place. Were you aware this is what we were looking for? Because actually, if you didn't know we were looking for cancer, this is going to be much more of a shock. I need to proceed much more slowly about this, and I need to go through the steps of why we were concerned. But if the patient says, I know you were looking for cancer, straight away, that's a very different type of discussion. So I've actually had a very uh, interesting case today uh, where this has all happened to me. So I've got a gentleman who um, I got to see because of uh, gastric obstruction, and turns out it's a reoccurrence of his uh, urethral cancer. And on the CT scan, it shows that it's invading the duodenum. So he's unfortunately got outflow obstruction. So I had to go into the room today. Lovely gentleman, 
in his 80s, usually fitting well apart from this. And in there was his wife and son-in-law. And you could tell as soon as I kind of knelt down by him, introduced myself, kind of explained what was going on, explained the CT scan. It looked like actually there had been reoccurrence. That's what's causing the blockage. You know, we need to do something about this. I understand, obviously, that he wasn't for any further chemotherapy because he'd previously had seizures to that and he was for best supportive care. And having those conversations in front of his wife and his son-in-law were very different because actually when you're picking your language, you aren't also just breaking news to the patient, you're breaking to the family. And they each had very different reactions. His reaction was very much like overwhelmed. The information clearly flawed him. He was not taking much on board and will probably need to process that in his own way. And sometimes after you give those people those diagnoses, you can always say, I can come back if you need. Don't worry. We can talk more about this. I'm on call until, you know, 8.30 at night. I usually tell them that I'm on call tomorrow and I can come back and speak to them. Or if they think of any questions, to write them down and we can ask you, because I know that obviously this is very much overwhelming for them. His wife, on the other hand, was very much very anxious, very proactive. Well, what are you doing now? What's the next steps? You know, some people take that kind of attitude where they need to know instantly because that's their way of coping with the news. And the son-in-law was just angry. And it's very difficult to try and manage those three emotions in a room at the same time while not being rude, while not coming across as, you know, I need to go. So it made me late for my next thing. I was I was due to go to medical examiner to go and do a case discussion. And I was half an hour late because I spent more time with this family than I thought I was going to and because of their reactions and everything else. And it can it can take an emotional toll on you as a doctor, but it's important to remember that isn't a skill that we're necessarily practice or taught, but you can just be kind and being kind is the easiest thing to be in those situations. And you can always go back to them afterwards if you don't have all the answers there and then to not to feel bad for leaving and coming back. What about you, Mark? Have you, have you had experiences like that? Well, we're both involved in that same case. I thought it would be an interesting thing to highlight that that individual when he first came in would not have been expecting that news because that's not the, was not felt to be the likely answer when he first presented. And that's part of the challenge is the reason you've probably got three very different reactions because it's three different people, but also a news that was not expected in the context of everything that's going on with him. But we'll put that one to the side. It's one of the challenges of having different people in the room as you do get different responses, but that reflects the challenges of where people look at these types of problems. If you're a patient, your perspective on things would be very different. You'll be like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me next? Am I going to be in pain? Am I going to suffer? Is this another procedure I have to go through? Whereas the son, if he's had no context of all the investigations that have been going on, all of a sudden he's told some devastating news, of course. The first stage of grief tends to be an anger response of why are you telling me this? This does not fit my bias coming in. I did not expect you to be telling me this news. And it's a visceral response that you get. And understandably, the wife who wants to prolong the life of her dear husband is going to want to know what are you going to do because I need to keep this individual as well as possible. And that's one of the real challenges of managing different personalities and different people in the same room. And it takes time, as, as Dr. Greenwood has said. It takes time for you to unpick every single question from every single person. And these conversations, I've had conversations like this that can go on for hours, two, three hours of talking, people going through the scan, offering to go and get a certain person who knows more about this to bring them into the room. It's a lot of information for multiple people to digest. I I agree. I um, I think that so I wanted to add something on what you said. Um, the fact that there is more than one reaction, one room, and every reaction, I think, um, takes 
takes a part of you and and needs a part of you to to kind of deal with it because a lot of the patients when you tell them when you break bad news to them they go very very silent and to me it seems like they have ringing in their ears they're not really listening to what you're saying so a lot of the information that you actually give them isn't actually delivered a lot of them go angry a lot of them have anger and they deal with these emotions in a very angry way where they're bargaining their um, diagnosis or trying or in denial of the fact that you just told them something especially also I feel like this happens more with family members than patients um, they would be in denial of this diagnosis you just gave them about a, a very loved one yes some people break into crying and tears and and each one of these reactions is I think needs a different part of you to deal with it so you've heard mine and Elliot's perspective on this issue Moon, and what do you think as an person at the start of their career how do you feel do you feel confident breaking bad news if you were found in that situation on a ward to be fair i i can say that i feel better now about it than i how i was feeling when i started working in the beginning i can't deny that i've cried in most of the conversations or at least after them they always got to me they were always very emotional to me because i i'm generally not someone that's comfortable with the idea of death i think i've stopped crying now great that's and good. Um, yeah, that's great news. I think that I've learned to have a, a positive twist into how I say these things that I think is really, really important for the people that are hearing it. I think when I feel like the person in front of me feels cared for and supported, it makes me feel better. It even leaves me with a better feeling towards the thing that I've just done or the news that I've just um, delivered than if they didn't feel okay about about the, the news after. And I understand that a lot of people will not be feeling great because it is really bad news. But at least they felt that the person that told them the news was nice enough to tell it to them in a in a in a kind way and in a way that means that they care. How and do you I feel? Do you feel be- you're changing in some broader way? Do you feel you're becoming more steel hardened? Do you feel you're becoming more sharp? What do you think it is that's actually changing? I think I have more expectations of what reactions might happen when I say things like that. In the beginning, I didn't know how people are receiving this information, how they react to it. With more conversations and with definitely watching and learning from seniors, seniors that will do these conversations in front of me. And I, by the way, I pick up on a lot of like sentences that are said in front of me that I want to use in my conversation that I think that they landed well with me as a third person hearing them being said to someone else. And I want to repeat them. And I, I think that we should start shifting our focus from reversing the disease to maybe shifting it into like symptom control or making you more comfortable. And I think these things have a positive twist on saying, let's not treat the disease anymore and let's just make you comfortable because this is where we're at now. And I, I, I really think that these sentences make you handle these conversations a bit better. And so I don't exposure think that has been one of the most be... powerful tools for you then. So the more yeah. of these conversations you've seen, the better you've got. Do you, but do you think it's a part of your person that's changing or is it just the exposure? I think it's all of it. I, I think it's multifactorial what you, what you, how you change throughout your career as a doctor. There's a lot of things that affect you and a lot of things that make you, well, to a certain extent, feel hardened, like you say, but, but also just know more how to deal with the situation and how to contain patients' emotions. A lot of the times they might want to start screaming, but you have to remain calm and you have to contain them because you're the person that's kind of sane at that minute. They're receiving really traumatic news and they might re- react in well a spectrum of different reactions and the only thing that you can do is contain them and being soft toned 
talking slowly, um, maintaining your calm is really important things to do with that. And yeah, I think a lot of things affect, affect the conversation, but this is some of the things on top of my head. I wanted to know what you, th- what both of you think that, um, is kind of the, one of the easier reactions to deal with and one of the harder reactions to deal with. Do you think, um, I'll start with you, Mark. What do you think one of the harder reactions to deal with in this scenario? I personally think silence is, is a hard one, but what do you think? I think silence is challenging, but I, I would come back to what you say about different emotions. They all come from a place of sorrow, a place of grief. So they all emanate from the same source, but they come out as different entities. So actually, they are processing the matter what emotion they have shown you. They are processing sorrow. They are processing upset and disheartening by the information that you've relayed. So it all, it may be a different set of visceral outward emotion, but actually it comes from the same place. Anger is challenging to an extent, but often you just have to make people understand. Understanding is where a lot of it comes. For me, I want to make sure the person leaves as informed as possible because that helps combat a majority of the challenging emotions, so to speak. Silence is challenging. Absolutely, but silence is challenging in a different way because it means you have to try and fill a space. And it's quite difficult when you're in a room on your own or a room with a a nurse and it's just the patient because that does occasionally happen and you get very little response back because you know inside their head they are likely in a state of panic. And it's a information and processing overload. I wanted to mention all of us in our lives will have come across grief to some extent as a relative or maybe as an individual if they've received bad news and unfortunately come better from it. And that feeling when you first receive that negative piece of news, it is soul destroying. You have to remember that's one of the key things when we break bad news is there is a moment where the pit falls from one's stomach and the reality of a what may have been a chance of something suddenly becomes a reality. And that's a hard thing to process. What do you think about that, Elliot? I think um, just thinking about the case I've done today, so I think it does also help you then go into um, advanced care planning. So with this gentleman, when he was obviously shocked, my next question after breaking the bad news is, when I'm talking about the planning future, is my opening question is, what is important to you? Mm-hmm. So you're putting it back on them. You're not treating them as a diagnosis. You're not treating them as, you know, the next investigation. What is important to them? Because there isn't any point in making all these plans if this gentleman says, well, actually, I don't want further chemotherapy. I don't want to live the rest of my life getting nauseous, feeling sick, and then having my hair fall out. Or I don't want to be in pain. Um, Actually, the most important thing is being able to spend time with my family. And it's about, and I'm very clear with this with patients, is that it's about some patients want to be here for a long time. Some people want to be here for quality time. And it's very important to get that right for patients. Do they still want to be coming in every week for blood transfusions if needed? Do they want to be readmitted if they uh, end up, you know, becoming really unwell at home? Or do they just want to stay at home where they're happy and comfortable? And it kind of leads me into that where asking someone what is important to you is one of the most open questions you can ask. And then you can just listen. And that usually gives you kind of a good entry into sort of the next stage after the break in the bad news, especially if it's a horrible diagnosis such as metastatic cancer, where the prognosis is not great, into sort of advanced care planning. And sometimes it's not the right time. So today when I have done that with that gentleman, he clearly just needed a bit more time. So it was more that you introduce him to the idea of advanced care planning and make it very clear that there is no right or wrong answer. Everybody's different. 
and then being able to give the family time to to then think about where he might want to be and what he would want in the future, but not necessarily setting everything in stone. Um, I think this is a this is a good point to move forward to advanced care planning since it is it would be in a lot of the cases the next step in these discussions in breaking bad news. I just wanted to add one thing about the things we were saying before, and I think it has been mentioned, giving the patient time and space to process these things that have been taught, taught to them. I think in a lot of the cases, these discussions kind of happen very early in the morning in a night shift and usually in a, on an, or on an on-call shift when everyone's very busy and we are pretty much don't have a lot of time or enough time to kind of give patients time to process these things but I did want to emphasize and stress the importance of, of giving them their time to process these emotions um, a lot of the times you can tell them something and you just want to ask them if they want a minute and actually give them the minute even if they don't say they wanted a minute because it just takes a bit of time for you to accept and process such bad news when you when you've received them I think a minute is needed before we also start with advanced care planning in advanced care planning, big decisions are being made and they need to be coming from a place where the patient and or their, their family is under understanding of the situation and the toll of the decisions that they're making. Moving forward to advanced care planning, I wanted to start by maybe a bit of a definition of what advanced care planning is. Elliot, would you give us would you give us what the advanced care planning is and why, why it's important? In what cases would we um, kind of want to do it? Advanced care planning for me is is basically what are the sort of relevant diagnoses you're thinking about sort of a summary care record that will highlight your future plans on how you would manage this patient. So important things. So if they have a progressive neurological illness, patients with dementia, patients with progressive diseases such as cancer, you know, heart failure. These are the kind of conditions that you might be thinking about advanced care planning that you know that are incurable but are going to likely progress and affect someone's quality of life and quantity of life. So within advanced care planning, what we use in the country is the respect form now. Um, there is obviously the DNA CPR uh, sort of section of it, so do not attempt resuscitation or cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And a lot of people think that respect forms now are synonymous with DNA CPRs, but respect forms are so much more than that. You know, they can highlight advanced directives. So if a patient says, I do not wish to have CPR, if this happens, or if I if I have reduced consciousness or can't make a decision and I have had a horrible stroke or I, I don't want a peg tube inserted, things like that. So these are advanced statements that might be put on the forms. And then after that, you can think about other things such as preferred place of care, preferred place of death. And and then also in terms of readmission to hospitals, do they want to be readmitted? And if so, what for? And then we kind of use it as a medical capacity in terms of documenting ceiling of care. So if someone would be for ward level care, HDU, and if they do go to HDU, what is it for? Or ICU or full sort of uh, intubation, ventilation, inotropes, all of that stuff. I, I think the respect document isn't filled out all the time. Um, we do neglect things such as people's religious views. You know, I think that's something that we as a, as a cohort aren't very good at asking about. It's certainly something I need to work on as well as a, as a clinician that I'm aware of that I need to ask about people's religious uh, views and whether or not people do want like a priest to come see them and give them their last rites. So that's my probably understanding of what advanced care planning would encompass to ensure that people have good escalation plans in place and we get the death right for them really because it also highlights what's important to them, who's the next of kin, you know, 
uh, I've smuggled in dogs. I've smuggled in beer for people. It's, it's important. I, I, my, my I belief is that you have a birthday every year. So if you have a bad birthday, it's not so bad, but you only die once. So I think if you can get somebody's death right, it's, uh, it's really important. I, I, I assume it's their dog you brought agree. in, not someone else's dog. Is that right? <laughs> it, not just a random dog on the street. No, no, no. It was it was their dog. It was their, their dog. dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. no um, they asked for you weren't, weren't forced feeding them alcohol. No, no, no. It was yeah. I, I yeah, prescribed prescribed the beer. Good man. <laughs> How about you, Mark? What's your take on this on advanced care planning? I, I would agree very much with what Doctor Greenwood has said. He's much more wasted in these things than I am. I think in reality, it's about making allowing a patient to make an informed decision about what would happen next in the case that they need to either re-seek medical attention or we have to make some decision on their behalf. And actually, advanced care planning is an incredibly powerful tool when used correctly in terms of making sure the patient's wishes are actually maintained. It's less of a challenge these days because respect forms are generally better understood. But one of the jobs of the SHR registrar in years gone by has been to go down to the resource department and see a patient who is palliative care for some cancer or is nursing home resident for severe dementia have to send from home from the A&E to try and prevent admission that should have been prevented prior to that. I can think of times even recently where I've gone to see a patient where the advanced directive, the advanced care planning has been done in many ways to prevent admission somehow it slipped the net. You have so much more power to do what the patient wished or the clinician thought was in their best interest previously when you have someone who has an advanced care plan. And it's about escalation. It's about where we go from here. If things get worse, often things will get worse. It's being clear about what the patient wanted or what the clinician at that time thought was the right outcome. It's easy to continue escalating care when you don't have a history with a patient. If I see someone who's in their 80s, but I'm not quite sure if they're normally fit and well, then I see an advanced care directive, an advanced care plan that states this individual actually has severe cancer, they are palliative intent, and all they want to do is go back home. It's so much easier for me to call up that palliative care ambulance and put them back where they want to be. It's about informing people's care, and they are very powerful. In the elderly care setting, I've written advanced care directives, advanced care plans where I've said this patient is not to be readmitted under any circumstances. And then two, three months later, that patient has died comfortably at home. And that's the way it should be. That's what they're about. And they are a very holistic tool that perhaps is sometimes underused. So I think that something me and Mark can sort of um, pass on in this podcast is how to initiate these discussions, because I feel that is something that most juniors struggle with and aren't comfortable with, and something that I have practiced over time. And one of the things that I tend to use is also statistics. So when you're talking to patients about DNACPR, which is do not trust state, especially sort of elderly patients or people who are a bit younger who might have irreversible conditions, it's very clear to say to the people several things. One, respect forms are only really coming to use or DNACPR forms are only come to use once that person's heart stops. So I tend to reassure patients that I will try and reverse everything that I can up until their heart naturally stopping. And at that point, I will still treat them, but I will treat them in a different way, and I will treat them with comfort and dignity. And usually that's a sentence that lands pretty well with patients and families. And it's true. The other thing is to explain that, you know, 25% or, you know, as an in-hospital arrest, it's only really about maybe 25% of those patients uh, who have 
um, in hospital arrest and CPR survive till discharge. So of the people that we do CPR in hospital, only about 23, 25% of those will actually survive till discharge. Um, it's probably even less if you have an out of hospital arrest. And it's explaining that, you know, patients who have, you know, CPR, we end up causing a lot of trauma. We do, unfortunately, cause broken ribs, pneumothoraxes. They end up going post-resuscitation care on ICU. That usually involves them being intubated and ventilated if they've had, you know, a significant amount of downtime. And then the other thing as well is you can get secondary hypoxic brain injuries. Can I mention Mark, as well that the statistic that Elliot's quoted, I'm pretty sure, is with successful ROSC. Is that correct? So you have to correct the patient has to survive the first attempt and then it's a 25 percent. Correct. Correct. So we actually get uh, ROSC in about half the patients. So of 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 the 50 percent that we successfully resuscitate, I think about then 23 percent uh, don't make it to discharge. So it's, it's it, and people don't remember that. People think that they see CPR in films and people come back instantly. And it's kind of educating patients on that and using, you know, not to scare people and say CPR is a good treatment, but like any treatment, you can't demand a treatment. If we feel that a treatment is going to cause more harm than good, then we shouldn't do it. And that's that's basically what I say to patients is I do not think that CPR is in your best interest. I believe we will cause you more harm. And actually, it would be better to prioritize your comfort and dignity above all else. I highlight what I do think they would be for. So um, HDU care or, or ward level care. Would you think that that advice helps you, Muna? I think it's, yeah, what you what you both said is really relevant to, to the practice that we do every day. And I wanted to add something from, well, a personal experience is that, and it, it does touch on the cultural sensitivities in that regard, is that I, for one, come from a culture that doesn't really have these discussions. We we never have them in hospitals. They're not very welcomed, I want to say. And when I started working in the NHS, I found it difficult in the beginning to understand why we're doing advanced care planning. And with time that I've heard more and more people try and explain to me why this is actually good for the patient and not a bad thing. It's not like we're withdrawing treatment because the first thing you think of when you hear about advanced care planning or DNAR is you're withdrawing CPR or you're withdrawing escalation of, of care. And with time, I've realized that it is actually when you are actually you're maintaining their dignity, you're giving them a patient centered care where they can actually decide what they want to do with their lives and they can decide what interventions they want, because a lot of the times they are they might be frail and they know that they're going through a lot of pain just because of interventions that we do on a daily basis. For example, even as, as, as basic as taking blood, some of them just tell you that like, I don't want someone stabbing me every day. And I want to be more comfortable than that. And that is completely reasonable, to be fair. I... It's easy to add extra treatment. It's very hard to stop treatment. I think one of the things that I noticed and I've seen in my practice is the best doctors are very good at working out what doesn't need to happen. It's very easy to add more and more things. It's very easy to add an extra blood test, thinking that's somehow going to change the reality of the situation that's sat in front of you. The real skill in being a physician, a part of the reason why I became a physician in my practice is the ability to work out what is not required to make a decision. And sometimes me and Elliot spoke about this on our past podcast, it's about not doing a CT head for a patient who is evidently about to die of something. It's about working out what you actually need to make sure that the patient's objectives are met. And sometimes that's just appreciating the patients all of a sudden developed a very significant stroke. I'm just going to make sure they are comfortable because that's what they wanted for every single significant illness they would potentially come across. That takes 
bravery, it also takes clinical knowledge to be able to make those decisions and make them well. And that's something that sometimes people don't do because they're not willing to put in that extra bit of risk and thought towards making decisions that are right. I entirely agree with what you've said, Muna. One of the challenges internationally is that we are perhaps a little bit of an outlier internationally in the sense that we do have these discussions. Exactly why that is, I'm not quite sure, because even the Americans who have a very similar culture are very pro-intervention compared to us. I don't think it's a reflection on the NHS being a public system. I think it's just a fact that we've been able to open up those debates because of where we are as as a society, perhaps. I agree with you on that, because I... I also always thought about, like, if I've ever opened that topic with someone, they might take it aggressively. But actually opening this up with patients here, it has, it has rarely been taken aggressively, which means that these topics should actually be open in the first place. But I think it's just cultural restrictions that make you think that someone will not accept these discussions. But a lot of the times it is what the patient wants, and it is actually a good discussion to have. So I'm thinking that it's not always good to be pro-intervention. What do you think, Elliot? So I, I agree with both of you. I, a, nice, a nice way that I lead into it with patients, especially if they're well but have a chronic condition that I know is going to deteriorate. So i.e. they're not they're not collapsing, but you get an eighty, you know, an eighty-two year old who's okay, independent at home, but still is probably not going to do well if she has a cardiac arrest suddenly and you know, is crumbling a little bit but slowly over a steady steady period of time. I, I always say, I'm having this conversation with you now because you are well. And you have the ability to tell me what's important to you. So that also lands quite well in the fact that I'm, I'm having it now rather than, you know, down the line when you're unconscious and I can't, I can't do what you want because I don't know. Whereas if I speak to you now about it while you're well and alert, we can have a sensible conversation and I can really understand you as a person and what's important to you. I agree with you. And um, yeah, I just wanted to thank both of you for an amazing episode. I think it was very informative. I hope our listeners will find it uh, as informative as I did. Thank you for sharing your experience and your expertise in this. And yeah, uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Airwave. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and learned something new. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favorite platform and look out for our content on YouTube. Thank you. Thank you. Elliot, say it first, then Muna, say it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Don't say it with an uplift. This is an end to go. Thank you. Just say thank you. Thank you.